what we're starting today is a whole segment, and I don't know how long this is going to go, because this is truly uncharted territory for me. I'm ashamed to say that the Puritans, all they really are for me is a name. I know almost nothing about them. So my first goal is to A, educate myself, and then B, to share what I find with you. So this isn't going to be a comprehensive survey of the Puritans uh, as taught to you by, you know, somebody with a PhD. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're kind of exploring these topics together. So um, the picture that you see there is a portrait of Matthew Henry. Has anybody ever heard of Matthew Henry? And a lot of people are raising their hands and nodding. Matthew Henry wrote a commentary on the scriptures, and it's a very well-known commentary for people who read commentaries. I don't really read commentaries, so I don't know what Matthew Henry had to say, but I, I do know that uh, uh, many people like his commentaries, and um, his writings have been very influential in shaping uh, American Christianity as well as British Christianity. Um, so uh, we are going to basically start with uh, groups that dissented from the Church of England. So we're going to be focusing on England, and uh, we will, of course, be talking about Ireland, Scotland, to a uh, here and there to a degree, uh, because they're right next to England. <laughs> and England has for centuries been trying to assert her dominance over those other countries. And um, the group that we're going to focus on mainly is called the Puritans. Um, there were other non-conforming groups. And so in England, uh, as we'll get into, there was the Church of England as initially established by Henry VIII. Um, and, uh, you know, again, we get into that mix of politics and religion because we are still in a period where the state and the church are viewed as really two halves of one whole. And society is founded upon a basis of church and state being interwoven and wed together. And the idea of people departing from that way of thinking is deemed nonconformism. And I need to. Okay, so if you recall, when we, we talked somewhat about um, the Reformation in England, Henry VIII had broken from the church in Rome. He had said, I'm married to a woman who is not producing a son for me. I need to get rid of her. I need to have an heir. The Pope is not going to annul my marriage with Catherine of Aragon, so I've got to get rid of Catherine, and I've got to get another woman who's going to bring me a son, basically. And if I need to break from Rome and create my own new church, therefore I will do so. And Henry was eventually able to have a male heir, and that male heir was Edward VI. Now, the picture that you see is not of Edward VI. This is actually a picture of a Puritan named John Hooper. 
Now, during the reign of Edward VI, he was a Protestant, uh, and many English Protestants had begun to believe that the Church of England had not moved far enough away from Roman Catholicism. So, uh, you know, during the time of Henry VIII, Edward VI's father, there were a lot of English Christians who were hearing about Martin Luther and the work he was doing in Germany. They were hearing about the Swiss Brethren. They were hearing about other reformers in Switzerland, Germany, and France. And again, because of the printing press, the ideas of the Reformation were circulating widely throughout Europe. And of course, they uh, made their way to uh, Great Britain also. And there, so there were a lot of Christians who um, not only were in sympathy or, or, or felt that Henry was maybe justified in breaking from Rome, they might not have agreed about his ideas about marriage and divorce, but they were certainly not uh, contrary to thinking about breaking away from Rome in the first place. And so a lot of those people, you know, once they saw what Henry had produced and what was going on under Edward, essentially the church looked a lot like it had before the break from Rome. You know, they were still continuing to d conduct the services largely the way they had as Roman Catholic churches. A lot of the things had remained the same. Now, Henry had, um, you know, conveniently for him, he had said, well, since all of these monasteries and churches and all the wealth and power of the church, you know, since I am now that, you know, we've broken from Rome and I am now the head of the church in England, and so I will, as the king, as the sovereign, take over what formerly was property belonging to the Roman Catholic Church. So Henry had basically shut down the monasteries. He had taken over the lands of the church. There had been some uh, iconoclasm, in other words, people going into churches, destroying statues, uh, breaking stained glass windows, getting rid of crucifixes, and other things that they felt uh, spoke heavily of the Roman presence. Uh, so there were a lot of people in England who, who were like, okay, we've broken from Rome, let's push farther ahead. And something called the Vestments Controversy arose in response to John Hooper's argument that religious vestments worn by clergy were not edifying. And Hooper based his... Um, beliefs on, uh, rather, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. So I'll read that verse. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Now keep in mind, also at this time, English-speaking people had Bibles that they could read themselves in English. Again, the Reformation impulse to bring the scriptures into the languages of common people, whether that was German, French, or English, or some other language, that had made significant uh, progress, as we've seen in previous talks. So... A, a clergyman like John Hooper 
uh, even though I, I think he matriculated at Oxford, um, you know, he had a university education, but he could read, and not only could he read, he didn't have to read the scriptures in Latin, he could read them in English. And the people that he was preaching to could read those Bibles for themselves. And there's something else, I don't know if I brought this out um, in previous talks, I really can't remember, but uh, People were so thirsty to hear the scriptures read to them in their own language. Now, a lot of people, you know, common people could not read in those days. But people who could read would get a hold of a Bible and they would have what were essentially public readings of scripture. This was going on in various places in Europe, England, and other countries. Wherever people could get Bibles in a language that they could understand, those people who could read the Bible would read it out loud to small groups. And this was considered and, and really served a, as a big, almost revolutionary impulse where the common people wanted to truly enter into the life of the church, uh, the Christian life. They didn't just want to go to church once a week, you know, stand and watch the priest say things and do things and never really enter in. For them to be able to hear the Bible in their own language was truly a revolutionary thing. Uh, so here's John Hooper. He's just a regular Church of England clergyman. Um, and he is asserting that religious vestments that were worn by the clergy were not edifying. And again, as we've said, during Henry VIII's reign, the property of the Catholic monasteries and churches had been seized by the king, and many other changes began to occur during the reign of uh, Henry's son, Edward VI. Religious processions were banned, and clerical marriage was allowed. That was huge. The clergy were allowed to marry. Again, under Roman Catholic doctrine, priests and other clergymen cannot marry. Prayer for the dead, requiem masses, in other words, masses that were said for the dead, and the chantry foundations, these were um, voluntary associations that paid for masses to be said. So for example, if you were Roman Catholic and uh, one of your beloved relatives died, you, would, you could pay the church to have masses said for your dead relative, um, presumably so that that dead person uh, would get out of purgatory sooner. And, uh, you know, this is kind of similar to the idea of indulgences. Get out of purgatory sooner, make it to heaven faster, uh, suffer fewer punishments in essentially the afterlife. Um, and there were foundations that supported uh, the saying of these masses, people would collect money, and it was a revenue-making scheme for the church. Statues, stained glass windows, and wall paintings in parish churches were destroyed. And you can, you know, if you go to England, to this day, there are churches that you can tour where some of the statues have no heads, or uh, some of the... Um, there's a type of art called a bas-relief, which is kind of like, it's partly sculpture and it's partly kind of like a mural. So on the side, on a wall, you could see these sculpted figures on the wall. 
And in a lot of churches, the faces were defaced. That's where we get the whole idea of defacement. The, the, um, a lot of these were made in stone. So somebody would take a chisel and a hammer and just basically chisel off the face. Um, the idea was that people are worshiping these icons, these idols. They need to go. <clears throat> Hooper, although a clergyman in the Church of England, was heavily influenced by Calvinist and Zwinglian ideas. Uh, Hooper was invited to give a series of Lenten sermons before Edward VI in February of 1550. He spoke against the 1549 ordinal, in other words, the ordination liturgy for bishops, uh, whose oath mentioned all saints and required newly elected bishops and those attending the ordination ceremony to wear a cope and a surplice. Those are religious garments that he objected to. In Hooper's views, these requirements were vestiges of Judaism and Roman Catholicism, which had no biblical warrant for authentic Christians since they were not used in the early church. <clears throat> Sorry, skipping ahead. Okay. Uh, well, did I go too far? Okay, the ordinal of 1549 had to do with the procedure to consecrate bishops. It required the swearing of an oath to proclaim the candidate's allegiance to the English sovereign. So, you know, if you're going to be ordained as a bishop, you're not only, you know, pledging your allegiance, your loyalty to God and to his church, but you have to do the same to the king or queen. The oath also required that the candidates swear by God and all the saints. The office of a bishop also required the wearing of the traditional Roman vestments. Now, Hooper was selected to be a bishop in the Church of England, but his Calvinist and Zwinglian views made him a controversial figure. The vestments controversy also became known as the edification controversy. This controversy arose from the debate over whether or not vestments, if they are, a, if they are deemed a thing indifferent, or the Greek term adiaphoron, should be tolerated if they are edifying or beneficial. Their indifference and beneficial status were key points of disagreement. And again, the term edification comes from the verses or the verse, rather, in 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Hooper charged that vestments or special ecclesiastical clothing for clergy are not edifying. Okay. Okay, what are we talking about here? We're just talking about clothing. Now, clergy in both the Eastern and Western churches had, for hundreds of years, worn special ecclesiastical clothing in conducting worship services. Over time, there emerged standards of dress for clergy in both everyday life 
and for conducting worship services. And the, the picture where um, there's four, um, the four figures over on the right, those are uh, Eastern Orthodox clergy people, uh, arch, oh, I forget all my terms, <laughs> priests and so forth, clergy within the Eastern Orthodox Church. And then on the left, is a picture of a clergyman in a reformed church, and he's wearing what's called the Geneva robe. And, um, you know, some of you may be familiar with these um, special, this special type of clothing, but some may not. So I'm going to go through what these are. Now, again, different churches have different styles, different colors, but so what I'm going to uh, focus on here is largely looking at Anglican or Church of England. Um, and some of this has, has changed over the years, but a lot has remained the same. So a cassock is the long ankle-length robe worn by clergy and others in Anglican-affiliated churches and also in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, some Lutheran churches, Eastern Orthodox, and so forth. And not only clergy, but sometimes uh, servers, or as I used to call them when I was Episcopal, <laughs> uh, altar boys, <laughs> and choir members. Cassocks worn by servers, lay readers, and choir can be of any color, but are usually black. And in most churches, uh, clergy would wear black cassocks. Now, there's another garment called the alb, and it is usually worn over the cassock. So the alb, let's see, whoops. So the alb was a basic garment worn in the Roman Empire. This, it, this comes from the early days of the church in the Roman Empire. It's a simple ankle length white robe again, often worn over the black cassock. The alb resembles the white robe given to the newly baptized in the early church as a symbol of having their sins washed away and being born into the new life in Christ. For Roman Catholics and some Protestants, the alb is a symbol of the Christian striving for purity and holiness. Stoles are signs of order and office. The priest stole hangs vertically over each shoulder. So you can see the priest, um, a typical Anglican priest uh, garment to be worn during church services with the stole going around the neck and hanging down. The deacon stole hangs diagonally from the left shoulder and then is secured at the right side. The chasuble, I hope I'm saying that right, is a large piece of material cut round or diamond shaped with an opening in the middle. This is worn only by an ordained priest during Eucharistic services, celebrating Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. The deacon will wear a similar vestment for Eucharistic services called the dalmatic. Under this is the white alb, and under that would be the black cassock. Now, what is the origin of these ecclesiastical garments? They come from how people dressed in the earliest Christian times in the late Roman and Byzantine empires. 
So what, you know, in the 1500s, what people were seeing in the churches when they looked at a priest conducting uh, a mass or a Holy Communion service, they were looking at how people dressed hundreds of years ago. So in a way, these garments aren't, they're not all that special, and yet they've become special because in the 1500s, people are no longer dressing like this on an everyday basis. Now, a surplice, which is one of the garments that um, Hooper objected to wearing, it's a tunic of white linen or cotton fabric reaching to the knees, or it could be longer, with wide or moderately wide sleeves. And I've got pictures here of an Anglican uh, surplice uh, on the left, and on the right is a Roman Catholic surplice. And so Anglicans generally wear longer surplices, and Roman Catholics often wear shorter ones. And again, this is one of the garments that John Hooper objected to. Now the thing, you know, you begin to ask yourself, what's the big deal? Why is this so important? Another garment that Hooper objected to is the cope. And the picture, um, hopefully you can see that. Um, the picture is actually of a Roman Catholic procession with Roman Catholic clergy, but this was the best picture I could find uh, of what a cope would look like. It's basically a large, heavy cape, um, richly embroidered and very colorful. Um, and it's held together by a band over the chest. And in, uh, for some copes, they would take a very large piece of jewelry, like a brooch, um, and they would secure the cope to keep it from slipping off the shoulders. And they called that a morse. And it was often richly embroidered and sometimes would be jeweled. Uh, these garments um, were probably very expensive and probably required a great deal of work and care to create. They were very beautiful. Um, I think what a lot of the Puritans objected to with the vestments would have been the same objection that they had to statues in churches and icons and pictures that people would venerate. Um, these things are, I guess they would think, perhaps, that they draw the worshiper's attention away from God and toward the thing itself. It's showy. And the Puritans, uh, you know, as, as we'll go on, we'll see, they, want, they wanted to dress in anything but a showy manner. So this was another uh, garment that John Hooper objected to for his ordination. He did not want to wear a richly embroidered, expensive cope. So in his arguments, Hooper also cited Romans 14:23b, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Romans 10:17, faith cometh from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And Matthew 15:13, every plant not planted by God will be rooted up. He used those verses to argue that indifferent things must be done in faith. 
And since what cannot be proved from scripture is not of faith, then indifferent things must be proved from scripture, which is both the necessary and sufficient authority as opposed to tradition. So in other words, uh, Roman Catholics and many Church of England people would have said, well, these garments are traditional. You know, we, clergy have been wearing these for centuries. Um, what's the problem? So again, the Puritans began to see that it might be a problem because if this is something from tradition and it doesn't really point the worshiper to God, is it truly indifferent? Is it something that we don't need to quibble over? In other words, does it matter how we dress in church? Does it matter how the clergy dress when they conduct religious services in church? Is that important, or is it just really a minor point? So Hooper, for, for Hooper, it was truly a major point, and he declined to be ordained as a bishop. However, because of the required vestments and oath by the saints, he just couldn't stomach this. However, this action violated the 1549 Act of Uniformity, in other words, the Act of Uniformity said all English people must be Protestants, must be part of the Church of England, and must do what the church authorities and the king say they have to do. It made declining the appointment to the position of bishop without good cause. It was a crime against both the king and state and the church, so Hooper was called to answer to the king. The king has accepted Hooper's position, in other words, King Edward VI. He was willing to let Hooper be ordained without forcing him to swear this oath and without wearing these ecclesiastical garments. But the Privy Council, which was the king's closest counselor made up of uh, aristocrats, they didn't accept it. Hooper was called before them on May 15, 1550, and a compromise was reached. And so they decided that vestments were to, were to be considered a matter of adiaphora, or res indifferentes, things indifferent, as opposed to an article of faith. In other words, you, you can be a faithful member of the Church of England and not agree with vestments. Okay, that's fine. But what about those people who don't want to worship in a church where the clergy are wearing these garments? That was another question. Hooper could be ordained without them at his discretion, but he must allow others to wear them. So in other words, this was becoming a question of liberty of conscience. Okay, this man feels that he should not wear these garments and he should not swear an oath by God and all the saints. Okay, we'll let him off the hook. We won't require him to uh, go through with those things. But as a whole, the church is going to enforce these things. Church of England clergy will wear these vestments and um, they will, other bishops, when they are ordained, will be required to swear that oath. Then Hooper said, these vestments are not an indifferent thing. It's important what we wear. It's significant. And his argument was that they obscure the priesthood of Christ. 
they encourage hip hypocrisy and superstition. Okay, so this guy is a troublemaker and they put him under house arrest in mid-December 1550. And Hooper was then sent to Fleet Prison by the Privy Council who made that decision on January 27th, 1551. In other words, this guy is really rocking the boat and, you know, as happened to so many people in those times, uh, you know, liberty of conscience only went so far. Now at this point, Hooper's in prison and John Calvin and Heinrich Bullinger, who had met Hooper, Hooper had gone to uh, Switzerland, to the continent. He had talked to these guys in person. He, he had talked to Zwingli. Um, these reformed leaders wrote to Hooper and said, it's not such a big deal. Don't resist. This isn't worth martyrdom over because this was kind of the path that he was headed on. So on February 15, 1551, Hooper submitted to consecration in vestments, and he wrote this in a letter to Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, of the Church of England, who's the highest authority in the church. <clears throat> Cranmer appointed Nicholas Ridley, the Bishop of London, to conduct the ordination service for John Hooper. Ridley, however, continued the dispute over vestments, agreeing that vestments are indifferent, or in other words, it's not a big deal, but making a compelling argument that the monarch may require or the king may require indifferent things without exception. So what you wear when you conduct church services isn't that big of a deal, but if the king says you have to wear vestments, obey the king. Because the king is also the governor of the Church of England. And we'll get into that in a little bit. So the Privy Council then became divided in opinion and the issue dragged on for months without resolution. Then a nobleman, the Earl of Warwick, got involved and he maintained the king must be obeyed in things indifferent. And he pointed to St. Paul's concessions to Jewish traditions in the early church. Although I'd argue with the Earl of Warwick that St. Paul didn't really concede that much to Jewish, Jewish tradition. But anyway, he thought it bolstered his point. Hooper now insisted that vestments were not indifferent. Now they matter. It matters what the clergy wears. Since they obscured the priesthood of Christ by encouraging hypocrisy and superstition, but Bishop Ridley argued that vestments are not necessarily or exclusively identified with Israel or the Roman Catholic Church. So he's saying just because Roman Catholics wear these vestments, doesn't mean that we can't or shouldn't wear them in the Church of England. On Hooper's point about the priesthood of all believers, again, a key Reformation concept, Ridley said it does not follow from this doctrine that all Christians must wear the same clothes. So if we have clothes that distinguish lay people from clergy, that's not a problem. It doesn't interfere with the priesthood of all believers, according to Ridley. At the heart of the argument, although not acknowledged by the participants in the debate, was what do vestments symbolize or what is their meaning? 
And what do vestments mean to those who participate in the worship services? As Hooper was looking at prolonged incarceration in the king's prison, he was eventually persuaded to relent. <clears throat> Hooper was consecrated Bishop of Gloucester on March 8, 1551, and shortly thereafter preached before the king in vestments. In 1552, a revised Book of Common Prayer, which was uh, the standard for Church of England worship, omitted the vestments rubrics that had been the occasion for the controversy. But the vestments controversy continued on for more than a decade and is a major contributing factor in the development of the groups that came to be called Puritans and Separatists. Okay, let's fast forward to Elizabeth I. Queen Elizabeth I came to the throne of England at the age of 25 on November 17, 1558. The Protestant daughter of Henry VIII and his second wife, Anne Boleyn, she sought unity with her first parliament in 1559 and did not encourage nonconformity. So Elizabeth came to the throne after her sister, Queen Mary, who was Catholic and had persecuted the Protestants. So here comes a Protestant sovereign now at following a Catholic queen. And Elizabeth had to consolidate her rule. So she said, basically, everybody is going to be on the same page. We're all going to be Church of England. However, she did not actively persecute English Catholics uh, in the same manner as her um, half-sister Mary had persecuted uh, Protestants. So under Elizabeth's 1559 Act of Uniformity, and this Act of Uniformity is where we get, you know, the phrases uniformity and, and uh, dissenters or nonconformists. So her Act of Uniformity backed by the act of supremacy. In other words, she was consolidating her rule. She's the head of, she's the governor of the church. The archbishop of Canterbury is the ecclesiastical head of the Church of England. She represents the uh, state, and because state and church are inextricably intertwined, um, she and the archbishop are going to rule together in all manners concerning how the church should function in England. Um, she decreed that the 1552 prayer book or book of common prayer was to be the model for ecclesiastical use, but with a stance on vestments that went back to the second year of Edward VI reign. So she's basically coming down on the side of clergy wearing the vestments that they had that were similar to uh, what they had worn when uh, uh, England was Roman Catholic. The alb, the cope, and the chasuble were all to be brought back into use, where some Marian exiles, remember the Marian exiles were English Protestants who had fled to mainly Switzerland 
when Queen Mary, the Catholic queen who was executing Protestants, had ruled. Um, and when they were in Europe, they were consorting with the likes of John Calvin. Uh, and those, you know, it's... It's hard for us, I think, to understand the, why people would be so uh, riled up about the clothing. What is the big deal? To us, it's very hard to understand. Um, you know, the, the Calvinists in, in uh, John Calvin's Geneva were wearing the Geneva robe, which I had, uh, had up on the uh, slide, a fairly simple black robe. It looks, if you've ever been to a university commencement, uh, the, the professors and the other um, officers of a university wear these medieval traditional uh, academic gowns. And um, where do those come from? They come from the Middle Ages. They come from the regular clothing of people from hundreds of years ago. Yet, because we don't wear those things today, they look very special to us. You know what? It, you know if you go if you go over to Wright State, uh, and, and if you could find anyone on campus <laughs> conducting in-person classes these days, if you go to into a, a classroom, you don't see the professors wearing caps and gowns. But in the 13 and 1400s, if you had gone to Oxford, they'd all be wearing those things. And the students would be wearing gowns too, because after all, what did people wear in the Middle Ages and the Reformation? They wore long, heavy robes because they didn't have central heating and they had to stay warm. <laughs> they didn't have a lot of uh, choices in clothing back then. Uh, so the clothing of centuries past has now become a matter of controversy, you know, in, in this time period in which we're, um, you know, looking at. So the queen assumed direct control over these rules and all ceremonies of right. She was determined that the Church of England was going to be, that her rule was going to be solidified and supported by a united church. And if she was if she was not going to persecute Catholics, which she didn't do a lot of, you know, she didn't put them to death wholesale the way her half-sister Mary had done with Protestants. What that meant was the Church of England had to be united. You know, if she's got a, another factious group, Roman Catholics, in the minority at this point, she does not want to deal with, okay, Roman Catholics and a bunch of dissenting people who are causing problems. You know, if we're not going to persecute Catholics and if we're going to prevent Catholic, she was, and this is kind of a backstory on Elizabeth, she was concerned about Catholics in other countries attacking her, particularly countries like Spain and France, attacking her and deposing her. So if England is going to stand up to her natural enemy, France, and what had come to become another natural enemy, Spain, both countries being Catholic, if, if she's going to stand up to the pressures of France and Spain, bigger countries, richer countries, bigger navies, she has got to get everybody in England on her page. <clears throat> so by March 1566, the controversy came to a head, but Elizabeth was determined that all clergy consent to vestments, and dissent was to be ended 
and I'm kind of running out of time, so I'm gonna move a little quicker. The clergy were ordered by the queen to commit themselves on the spot in writing to her decrees with only the words volo, Latin for I am willing, or nolo, Latin for I am unwilling. 61 clergymen submitted, 37 did not, and were immediately suspended with their living sequestered. A three-month grace period was given for these clergy to change their minds before they would be fully deprived. For a NOLO response, the clergyman lost his place in the church and the living that went with it. He would be forced into secular employment. Now, it was at this time that the word Puritan came into usage for dissenters. Other controversies arose as the implications of the Protestant Reformation for England began to emerge. Parliament had passed the Act of Uniformity of 1549, which decreed that the 1549 edition of the Book of Common Prayer was to be the sole legal form of worship in England. So even though Roman Catholics are continuing to have masses in their churches and they are not being put to death by Queen Elizabeth, the law of the land is Protestantism. It is the Church of England and the Book of Common Prayer. Now, the Book of Common Prayer was in English, and also by this time, various English translations of the Bible were available. Before 1549, the churches of England used various different versions of the Latin Roman Catholic Missal. Now, what about those ethnic groups that had been suppressed for ages and ages? Many ethnic groups within England, especially in Cornwall, Devon, and Wales, in the western part of England, wanted their worship to be in their ethnic languages, Cornish, Celtic, and Welsh. The sovereign king or queen of England was the governor of the Anglican Church, and this did not sit well with the ethnic minorities, all of whom had to worship only within the Church of England. Catholic Ireland was ruled by England and could serve as a base for hostile Catholic rulers of other nations to attack England. Catholics in Ireland were constantly trying to come up with plots against Elizabeth and they were helped in their plotting by France. France was using Ireland, Ireland was using France. You know, we're Catholics, we wanna get rid of this Protestant British queen for various reasons, so uh, Ireland was always a hot spot. Elizabeth responded by granting Irish lands to her Protestant English nobles, thus setting up the centuries-long conflict between Protestants and Catholics in Ireland, which continues to this day, unfortunately. Puritans continued to argue their points and even press their points in Parliament. Some of Elizabeth's most trusted counselors and MPs, members of parliament, notably Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, and Sir Francis Walsingham were Puritans. But the Puritans did not get involved in plots to overthrow Elizabeth or destabilize the country and were therefore seen as less of a threat than the Catholics. Indeed, the Protestants um, wanted to maintain an image of almost, we are the loyal opposition. That's something that comes from British politics, but it's true in this religious context. In other words, we're British through and through. We're Protestants through and through, and we support the Queen. We just want to see further reforms in the Church of England. 
Well, come on now. <laughs> Okay. In 1571, Walter Strickland, leader of the Puritan group in Parliament, wanted to reform the Book of Common Prayer and again ban clergy vestments. In the period 1575 through 83, some Puritan clergy started organizing prayer meetings, known as prophesyings, which displeased Elizabeth. In these meetings, Puritans took a freer approach to prayer and did not follow what Elizabeth had specified. She was concerned ideas might spread that challenged the religious settlement and expelled the Archbishop of Canterbury and 200 Puritan clergy from their posts. Now, Puritanism was never a formally defined religious division within Protestantism. Um, it was sort of like Zwinglianism in the sense that these were ideas that people held to, but they didn't necessarily establish a church called the First Church of the Puritans or something like that, although it did lead to the development of other denominations. The term Puritan itself was rarely used after the turn of the 18th century or the end of the 1700s. Some Puritan ideals including the formal rejection of Roman Catholicism, were later incorporated into the doctrines of the Church of England. And other Puritan ideals were absorbed into the many Protestant denominations that emerged in the late 17th and early 18th centuries in North America and Britain. Some Puritans began to advocate separation from all other established Christian denominations in favor of autonomous gathered churches. Unlike the Church of England, which theoretically encompassed everybody in England, a gathered church was made up only of those who had undergone a conversion experience. Starting to sound like Anabaptists a little bit, maybe? The Puritan vision that began in the Elizabethan era would eventually result in the Westminster Assembly and the Westminster Standards, including the Westminster Confession of Faith, which many of you may be familiar with, the Shorter Catechism and the Larger Catechism, and the Directory for Public Worship. The Puritans were not content with Elizabeth's Anglican settlement and the established church. They believed that the English church and state should be further reformed by the word of God and the faithful preaching of the gospel, as in the continental reformed churches. They were opposed to the rule of bishops, to the required use of the Book of Common Prayer, and many of the rituals of the Anglican establishment, which they believed were obstacles to true religion and godliness. They believed that the majority of the common people were kept in bondage to forms and rituals, and as a result to false religion and spiritual ignorance. The Puritans, moreover, wanted all the sins, rituals, and superstitions that smacked of Roman Catholic idolatry thoroughly abolished from the realm and from all the churches, including the mass, the surplice, and other vestments kneeling at the Lord's Supper, graven images and statues, profane and sexually immoral stage plays, and the widespread profanation of the Sabbath.
Fundamental to the rise of English Puritanism in the Elizabethan era, 1558 to 1603, was the influence of four highly influential reformers, John Calvin, Henry Bullinger, Peter Martyr, and Theodore Beza. And we've talked about Calvin and Bullinger. Uh, we haven't really talked much about Peter Martyr nor Theodore Beza, but they were all continental uh, reformers um, coming from mainly Switzerland, who were all in frequent communication with the crown and the reformed leaders in England. Calvin and Bullinger praised Queen Elizabeth for the work of reformation in England and the Anglican establishment and encouraged patience from the Puritans. Calvin's writings were widely published and read in England. <clears throat> The Puritan movement in Elizabethan England was also furthered by the work and ministry of John Knox and the Scottish Reformation that took place at the same time. Knox had spent five years in England from 1549 to 1554, assisting the English Reformation in the time of Edward VI, had fled to Geneva during the reign of Queen Mary, and spent several years with Calvin from 1554 to 1559. And if you remember in our talks about John Calvin, or rather John Knox, we talked about his many travels back and forth between the British Isles and the continent. And he returned to Scotland to spearhead the reformation of his home country from 1560 until his death in 1572. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, a uh, contemporary theologian and scholar, has called John Knox actually the first Puritan, even though he was Scottish and not English. That's all we have time for today. Um, I don't know if you have any questions or comments. Um, we are gonna talk more about individual Puritan figures. We will get into a little bit the English Civil War that brought about great changes in English society. Um, and so there's a lot more to, to work through. Again, I'm, I'm going to be focusing on English Puritans. I don't know how many, uh, talks it's going to be. Um, but we want to get to the point that we understand how the Puritans influenced religion in the United States. Of course, we all know the story of the pilgrims who came over in the 1600s, landed at Plymouth Rock and, uh, the colony that they ended up establishing. But a lot of us really don't know much more about these people who came to this country. So there's a lot more to look at uh, from there. Does anyone have any questions or comments?